June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customize paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that can enthrall you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped, like Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie. With exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances, Audible brings these stories to life like never before. And as a member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. We're the mass shooting generation. In the hours after 17 people were killed at Stoneman Douglas High in Parkland, Florida, students filled with grief and a righteous anger he wouldn't have harmed that many students with a knife. went to work starting a movement. Now, the generation with a notoriously short attention span is holding the nation's. Politicians have asked us to endorse, endorse them. Nope. You can support us all you want, but if you think you can get your hands on our movement, it's just not going to happen. I've seen that you called the Ayatollah Khamenei the new Hitler of the Middle East. Absolutely. At just 32, Mohammed bin Salman seems fearless and determined. He has quickly become the most dominant Arab leader in a generation. And in his first American television interview, MBS, the heir to the Saudi throne, walked us through his revolution, changing everything in his country, including granting new rights for women like driving. Driving's just a quick win. It's not everything. It's just a representative that we're going in the right direction. Can anything stop you? Only death. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Scott Pelley. I'm Sharon Alfonsi. I'm Nora O'Donnell. I'm Bill Whitaker. 
Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love. Or visit www.pacificlife.com. By now, the story is familiar, but no less heartbreaking. On Valentine's Day, a former student walked into Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High in Parkland, Florida, pulled an AR-15 out of his duffel bag, and began shooting. Students hid in closets and played dead. When it was over, 17 people were killed, 14 of them students. In the hours that followed, there were vigils, and a string of lawmakers offered their thoughts and prayers. Then something different happened. The students of Stoneman Douglas gathered in living rooms and in front of cameras, declaring never again. In less than a month, the teens did what few thought possible. They changed gun laws in Florida and ignited a national movement. We wondered how a generation with a notoriously short attention span plans to hold the nation's attention. You'll hear from them later. But we begin with another classmate who hasn't been seen or heard from since the shooting. This is Anthony Borges. He is 15 years old and should be at soccer practice. But when we met him on Tuesday, he was struggling to breathe. He'd just come off a ventilator the day before. Anthony's father, Roger, told us his son has had eight surgeries already. Another is being scheduled. He was shot five times just outside his classroom at Stoneman Douglas High. He was face-to-face with the shooter? Yeah. He got in the leg and he tried to, you know, keep him going with the, with the door. Uh-huh. He, he tried to shut the door? Yeah. In that moment, he received another one on the back. The Borges family is from Venezuela. Roger wanted the world to see what happened to his son. He called you, right? Yeah, he called me in the right moment when he get, he laid down on the floor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he told me, like, um, that I, I get shot. And I said, just keep talking to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, don't go, don't leave, don't leave me. Keep it talking to me. And where was he shot? Right here. Right here. One bullet shattered his thigh bone. Another damaged his lung and liver. That's a miracle for me. This is a miracle that he's still alive? Yeah. He's not number 18? No. No. Roger, a handyman, is now praying for another miracle, help paying his son's medical bills. Stories like Anthony's unfold quietly in hospitals after every mass shooting. Shame, shame! But what happened in Parkland is different. Instead of retreating into their gated neighborhoods and asking for privacy... 
or saying it was too soon to talk about guns. We're about to go national. All of this is about to be everywhere. Parkland decided it was exactly the right moment to talk about guns. Unless we act now. It was the students who stepped forward first and said, never again. You've probably heard a lot from them over the last month, but we were surprised about what they had to say about the fate of the gunman. Um, Florida prosecutor announced today that he's going to seek the death penalty against um, Nicholas Cruz. And I just want to get your thoughts on that, uh, Emma. Good. Good why? Good that he's seeking the death penalty for Nick Cruz. I don't want to think about Nick Cruz. I think the more we think about him, the more he wins. That being said, I, I, in a way, I disagree with Emma. Let him rot forever. Let him rot in jail. I want to see him rot forever, as Cameron just said. But when we pursue the death penalty, this will be kept in the media for much longer. I just don't want him to get what he wants. I want him to suffer no matter what. The death of one person, as terrible of a person as he is, cannot outweigh the death of the 17. Alex Wind, a self-described theater geek, Jacqueline Corin, the junior class president, student reporter David Hogg, and senior Emma Gonzalez started what they call the Never Again movement in Cameron Kasky's living room. I need to call the Washington Post because I was supposed to this last night. In the hours after the attack, filled with grief but fueled with anger and armed with their phones, the teenagers got to work. First, they set off a firestorm of tweets, many aimed at lawmakers. They said yes to almost every interview request and used social media to organize a student-led protest at the state capitol. This is about hope. This is about moving forward with everybody. In three weeks, they'd convinced Florida's Republican governor, Rick Scott, to defy the National Rifle Association, something that hasn't happened in Florida in 20 years. The new Florida law raises the age to buy a rifle to 21. Uh, it introduces a three-day waiting period on gun sales, and it makes more money available for mental health services. Give us a grade on what's been accomplished. C? I was going to say C minus. Yes, we can't praise them for doing what they've done because that wouldn't have stopped what happened at our school. That being said, the Florida bill is much more impressive than that embarrassing Stop School Violence Act that they're pushing in D.C., which is just a bunch of hot air fluff, doesn't use the word gun once when all these tragedies, there's, uh, again, the one thing that has linked them together is the gun. On Saturday, they're hoping a half million people will join them to march in Washington. They want Congress to ban military-style rifles like this, along with the kind of high-capacity magazines that were used in Las Vegas and at Sandy Hook. I know I can't help but think. I think Sandy Hook happened. Those parents made it their life's mission to try to get some real change. What makes you think that you guys could do more, that you this could be different? The thing about it is that we are the generation that's had to be trapped in closets waiting for police to come or waiting for a shooter to walk into our door. We are the people that know what it's like firsthand. We're the mass shooting generation. That's, I, I was born, We're the mass shooting generation. I was born months after Columbine. I'm 17 years old and we've had 17 years of mass shootings. Raise your hand if there are guns in your house. 
I feel safe because my father has a gun in the house that he can use to protect our family. And my family lives on the principle that there are some guns that are made to protect your family from anyone who might come in and try to hurt them. And there are some, some guns that are made for war. We need to pay attention to the fact that this isn't just a mental health issue. He wouldn't have harmed that many students with a knife. Three days after the shooting, Emma Gonzalez accepted an invitation to speak at a rally. The five foot two, 18 year old had to stand on boxes to be heard. Her speech was seen millions of times and ignited the passion of students around the country. She now has more than a million Twitter followers, 10 times more than Florida's governor. So why was it you? Why do you think you broke through? It might have been my hair. Very honestly, oh, come it on. just might have been my hair. I don't think it was the hair. I think it was a little, a little bit the hair. Like, you know, just iconically, you think of the picture and you think of a bald girl. What do you think about this idea of arming teachers? It's stupid. Why? First of all, they have... Douglas ran out of paper for like two weeks in the school year, and now all of a sudden they have $400 million to pay for teachers to get trained to arm themselves? Really? Really? If you're a teacher and you have a gun, do you keep it in a lockbox or do you carry it on your person? If the teacher dies and a student who's a good student is able to get the gun, are they now held responsible to shoot the student who's come into the door? I'm not happy with that. Where's the one with the- Emma's mother, Beth, watched as her daughter became one of the most recognizable faces in one of the most polarizing debates in the country. I'm terrified. It's like she built herself a pair of wings out of balsa wood and duct tape and jumped off a building. Mm. And we're just like running along beneath her with a net. Mm which uh, she doesn't want or think that she needs. What is happening to her life? It's insane. Somebody said, um, you know, please tell Emma we're behind her, Mm. which I appreciate, but we should have been in front of her. I should have been in front of her. We all adults, we should have dealt with this 20 years ago. It's a lot to ask these kids. Well, they're asking it of themselves, but some adults are like, you go, girl, you changed the law, you know. I'm like, well, what are we doing? The Douglas students inspired a walkout at nearly 3,000 schools for 17 minutes this past Wednesday. One minute for every life lost in Parkland. This is what we call the war room. It's the conference room. They allowed us into their newly donated headquarters. We agreed not to reveal the location. Why are we being secretive? People have sent us a lot of death threats, and I, for one, am paranoid about a bomb being thrown in the window. And the fact that I'm getting death threats, Emma's getting death threats, Cameron's getting death threats, it shows the polarized state that America's in. The victims are being represented by people that could have been the victim. All right? When I feel down, I come here and, you know, I just feel him. Manuel and Patricia Oliver's son was murdered in the shooting. Joaquin was 17 years old and considered one of the most well-liked kids in school. Oliver still coaches Joaquin's basketball team. He knows these kids. What is it that these kids can do 
that adults haven't been able to do in the past. These kids have their cell phones on their hands all day. And, and we as parents, we criticize that a lot because we ignore the power of that. The difference between this tragedy and others, if you ask me, is that this generation is um, used to get answers right away. You think they're going to wait for six months or a year for anybody in Congress or any, anybody that needs to make the right call? They're hardwired to do that. Absolutely, right away. The students have already received more than $3 million in donations, most of it from Hollywood. You guys have gotten checks from big names, George Clooney, Oprah Winfrey, your Michael Bloomberg's gun control group is helping you, the Women's March people are helping you. How do you make sure those people aren't using you for their specific agendas? Well, we don't let them. You see, that's the thing. We all remember everybody has an agenda. And these are people with decades of experience. Exactly. Are they giving you guidance? I can't get a hotel room on my own. I'm 17 years old. Of course, we have people helping us with that. I can't get the city permits for 10 blocks of down Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. We allow them to help where they can, but we make sure that we are calling the shots. And anybody who tries to call a shot for us, we respectfully say, that's not what this is about. Have you had to do that? Have you seen people trying to push back on you guys? Politicians have asked us to endorse. endorse them. Nope. You can support us all you want, but if you think you can get your hands on our movement, it's just not going to happen. Have you turned people away who have offered money? Yes. And why have you turned them away? Because they said, here's some money if you do this. The second we get an if, sorry, it's gone. During our interview, Alex had to leave early for a theater performance. Cameron for a family dinner. They are trying to live their teenage lives and protect them. Did you ever think, I don't want to get into this. This is a nasty fight that I don't want to be in the middle of. I mean, I have no choice. Well, you do. You don't have to. I don't. Why? I have no choice because there were, there were CNN cameras there. My speech was broadcast all over the country in like four seconds, and I had no idea they were going to be there. And that's not like I'm not upset at that. I'm just like, <sighs> never going to be the same person ever again. You think you'll be able to go back to your life? I hope so. I don't know. <laughs> Feels like it's been a year. It does. It really it's does. been a month. It's been less than a month. At 32 years old, Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is already the most dominant Arab leader in a generation. This week, he embarks on a cross-country American tour, where he'll pitch his kingdom to a skeptical U.S. public. He was named heir to the throne nine months ago by his 82-year-old father, King Salman, who granted his son vast new powers. Known by his initials MBS, his reforms inside Saudi Arabia have been revolutionary. He is emancipating women, introducing music and cinema, and cracking down on corruption in a land with 15,000 princes. But selling Saudi Arabia won't be easy. In his first interview with an American television network, he was eager to discuss his country's promise and its troubled reputation head on. 
when many Americans think about Saudi Arabia, they think about Osama bin Laden and 9-11. They think about the terrorism that he brought to American soil. Right. Osama bin Laden recruited 15 Saudis in the 9-11 attacks with a clear objective. According to the CIA documents and congressional investigations, Osama bin Laden wanted to create a schism between the Middle East and the West, between Saudi Arabia and the United States of America. Why did Osama bin Laden want to create that hatred between the West and Saudi Arabia? In order to create an environment conducive to recruitment and spreading his radical message that the West is plotting to destroy you. Indeed, he succeeded in creating the schism in the West. And how do you change that? Because it looks like what you're trying to do is change things here at home. Indeed. I believe that we've succeeded in many respects in the last three years. We first met Prince Mohammed at the royal court in Riyadh. He arrived in a driving rain, a sign of good fortune in the desert kingdom. He's been called bold and visionary for his reforms at home, as well as reckless and impulsive in his rise to power. He has kicked a hornet's nest in the Middle East and earned a host of new enemies. Partly why he's one of the most heavily guarded men in the world. This is the office where he starts his days. Working hard? A little bit. He learned English from watching movies as a kid, and he's acutely aware that 70% of the population is like him, under the age of 35 and getting restless. What's been the biggest challenge? Oh, there's a lot of challenge. I think the first big challenge that we have is to let the people believe in what we are doing. There is a widespread perception that the kind of... Islam practiced in Saudi Arabia is harsh, it's strict, it's intolerant. Is there any truth to that? After 1979, that's true. We were victims, especially my generation, that suffered from this a great deal. The crown prince traces most of Saudi Arabia's problems to the year 1979, when the Ayatollah Khomeini established an Islamic theocracy next door in Iran. The same year, religious extremists in Saudi Arabia took over Islam's holiest site, the Grand Mosque in Mecca. In order to appease their own religious radicals, the Saudis began clamping down and segregating women from everyday life. What has been this Saudi Arabia for the past 40 years? Is that the real Saudi Arabia? Absolutely not. This is not the real Saudi Arabia. I would ask your viewers to use their smartphones to find out, and they can Google Saudi Arabia in the 70s and 60s, and they will see the real Saudi Arabia easily in the pictures. What was Saudi Arabia like before 1979? We were living a very normal life, like the rest of the Gulf countries. Women were driving cars, there were movie theaters in Saudi Arabia, women worked everywhere. We were just normal people, developing like any other country in the world, until the events of 1979. Saudi women, who've been virtually invisible in public, have been given new rights, making it easier for them to start a business, join the military and attend concerts and sporting events. I'll go around. Okay. In June, they will be able to get behind the wheel and drive. Are women equal to men? Absolutely. We are all human beings, and there's no difference. You have said you are taking Saudi Arabia back to what we were, a moderate Islam, 
What does that mean? We have extremists who forbid mixing between the two sexes and are unable to differentiate between a man and a woman alone together and their being together in a workplace. Many of those ideas contradict the way of life during the time of the Prophet and the Caliphs. This is the real example and the true model. He has curbed the powers of the country's so-called religious police, who until recently were able to arrest women for not covering up. And listen carefully to what he says is not part of Islamic law. The laws are very clear and stipulated in the laws of Sharia that women wear decent, respectful clothing like men. This, however, does not particularly specify a black abaya or a black head cover. The decision is entirely left for women to decide what type of decent and respectful attire she chooses to wear. His words are significant. And so far, the kingdom's religious leaders are holding their tongues and have sworn allegiance to the young prince. Of all the meetings he presides over every week, this is the most important, his economic council. These are the men and a few women trusted with remaking Saudi Arabia's social pact with its people. One of the crown prince's closest advisors is Mohammed al-Sheikh, a Saudi-born, Harvard-trained lawyer. We had a young population... Uh, and we were providing for the population, uh, you know, uh, subsidized energy, subsidized water, subsidized medicine, subsidized education. We subsidized everybody's life. And no taxes. And no taxes. How close was Saudi Arabia to a financial crisis? I don't think it was extremely close, but it was heading in that direction. Reforming the welfare state is one challenge. Another is what the crown prince calls Saudi Arabia's addiction to oil. The state oil company, Aramco, is valued at $2 trillion. Under the crown prince's plan, some of it will be sold off to invest in new ventures. There are concerns that the kingdom's secretive finances and dismal record on human rights may spook investors. You have promised transparency and openness, but there are reports that dozens of people who have criticized your government have been arrested in the last year. They include economists, uh, clerics, intellectuals. Is this really an open and free society? We will try to publicize as much as we can and as fast as we can information about these individuals in order to make the world aware of what the government of Saudi Arabia is doing to combat radicalism. But to answer the question about human rights abuses in this country... Saudi Arabia believes in many of the principles of human rights. In fact, we believe in the notion of human rights, but ultimately Saudi standards are not the same as American standards. I don't want to say that we don't have shortcomings. We certainly do. But naturally, we are working to mend these shortcomings. But the crown prince has been accused of heavy-handed tactics. The most extraordinary example happened last November at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Riyadh. He invited hundreds of current and former government ministers, media moguls, prominent businessmen, and at least 11 princes to a meeting here, where they were accused of stealing from the state and were held until they either paid it back or proved their innocence. I mean, what happened at the Ritz-Carlton? How did that work? You were essentially the Ritz-Carlton became a jail. What we did in Saudi Arabia was extremely necessary. All actions taken were in accordance with existing and published laws. 
Among the detained was Prince Alwaleed bin Talal. And these are my salads. One of the richest men in the world. After Prince Alwaleed was detained for more than two months, the Saudis allowed a camera crew inside his room at the Ritz for a brief interview. And uh, I like to stay here until this thing's over completely and get out and life goes on. Mohammed al-Sheikh said the crackdown was necessary. It wasn't easy. Just given the names and given the people who were involved, it really wasn't easy. But we we just felt that we had to do this uh, and, and we had to do it that way. What kind of corruption are we talking about? I mean, how much money was disappearing? Probably 5 to 10 percent of the annual spend by the government, which was... Roughly, I would say anywhere between 10 to 20 billion dollars, maybe even more on an annual basis. So 20 billion dollars a year is just disappearing? Disappearing. There have been reports that some detainees were physically abused and one died in custody. The Saudis told us the choice of the hotel, quote, was to maintain the respect, dignity, and comfort for those being investigated. Was it a power grab? Uh, uh, If I have the power, and the king has the power to take action against influential people, then you are already fundamentally strong. These are naive accusations. How much money did you get back? The amount exceeds $100 billion, But the real objective was not this amount or any other amount. The idea is not to get money, but to punish the corrupt and send a clear signal that whoever engages in corrupt deals will face the law. Is this also about sending a message that, as we say in America, there's a new sheriff in town? Absolutely. Absolutely. But while the new sheriff is cracking down on corruption, there are questions about his own fortune. The New York Times reports he recently purchased this yacht for a half billion dollars, along with this French chateau. My personal life is something I'd like to keep to myself, and I don't try to draw attention to it. If some newspapers want to point something out about it, that's up to them. As far as my private expenses, I'm a rich person. I'm not a poor person. I'm not Gandhi or Mandela. I'm a member of the ruling family that existed for hundreds of years before the founding of Saudi Arabia. We own very large lots of land, and my personal life is the same as it was 10 or 20 years ago. But what I do as a person is to spend part of my personal income on charity. I spend at least 51% on people and 49 on myself. Among the prince's official titles is Minister of Defense, And this is where his apparent fixation on Iran has led him into a quagmire in neighboring Yemen. The Iranian ideology penetrated some parts of Yemen. During that time, this militia was conducting military maneuvers right next to our borders and positioning missiles at our borders. His response was to launch a bombing campaign that's led to a humanitarian disaster, as we reported on 60 Minutes last fall. He says Iranian-backed rebels have used the country to fire missiles at Riyadh. I can't imagine that the United States will accept one day to have a militia in Mexico launching missiles on Washington, D.C., New York and L.A. while Americans are watching these missiles and doing nothing. 
The United Nations says thousands of civilian deaths in Yemen are the direct result of Saudi airstrikes and a blockade, since lifted, of Yemen's port that temporarily stopped food and medicine from getting to hundreds of thousands of people. Do you acknowledge that it has been a humanitarian catastrophe? 5,000 civilians killed and children starving there. It is truly very painful, and I hope that this militia ceases using the humanitarian situation to their advantage in order to draw sympathy from the international community. They block humanitarian aid in order to create famine and a humanitarian crisis. Is what's happening in Yemen essentially a proxy war with Iran? Unfortunately, Iran is playing a harmful role. The Iranian regime is based on pure ideology. Many of the al-Qaeda operatives are protected in Iran, and it refuses to surrender them to justice and continues to refuse to extradite them to the United States. This includes the son of Osama bin Laden, the new leader of al-Qaeda. He lives in Iran and works out of Iran. He is supported by Iran. It's worth noting that Sunni Saudi Arabia and Shia Iran both claim to represent the one true branch of Islam. At its heart, what is this rift about? Is it a battle for Islam? Iran is not a rival to Saudi Arabia. Its army is not among the top five armies in the Muslim world. The Saudi economy is larger than the Iranian economy. Iran is far from being equal to Saudi Arabia. But I've seen that you called the Ayatollah Khamenei the new Hitler of the Middle East. Absolutely. Why? Because he wants to expand. He wants to create his own project in the Middle East, very much like Hitler, who wanted to expand at the time. Many countries around the world and in Europe did not realize how dangerous Hitler was until what happened happened. I don't want to see the same events happening in the Middle East. Does Saudi Arabia need nuclear weapons to counter Iran? Saudi Arabia does not want to acquire any nuclear bomb. But without a doubt, if Iran developed a nuclear bomb, we will follow suit as soon as possible. Saudi Arabia's 32-year-old Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman outmaneuvered uncles, cousins, and half-brothers to become the power behind the throne of his aging father, King Salman. Since then, this royal upstart has been remaking Saudi society out of both social and economic necessity. The vast majority of the kingdom's citizens are under 30, connected to the world at large through their cell phones. Just as important... Oil is no longer a predictable source of revenue, meaning the cradle-to-grave health care, education, and other services that have been the birthright of every Saudi citizen are imperiled. It's a combustible mix for a brash leader in a dangerous part of the world. But the heir to the throne seems eager for the challenge. Oh, this is where you spend all night. Mostly. Yeah. So all, all the uh, workaholic uh, minister. Yeah used to spend uh, most of their nights in this, uh, in this office. Uh-huh. So I'm sorry if it's a little bit lousy. This uh, is not a lousy uh, office. <laughs> he spends most evenings in Riyadh's Erga Palace, where he dispenses with the traditional Saudi headscarf. And so what time in the morning are you here till working? Oh, I, 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 I come here at, like, uh, 
afternoon uh-huh. till uh, late night. We're told his 82-year-old father, King Salman, is somewhere upstairs, leaving most of the day-to-day work to his son. <laughs> so, so, yes. go? Yes. He escorted us at 9 p.m. into this meeting about the public investment fund. <laughs> Under Prince Mohammed's detailed plan to remake Saudi Arabia, called Vision 2030, the public investment fund will eventually grow to $2 trillion. The men in this room are talking about how to invest it. They recently sank $3.5 billion into Uber. If bets like that pay off, it will be dividends, not oil revenues, pouring into the Saudi treasury. This man spends 24 hours a day working towards this vision. The goal is... Princess Rima bin Bandar is the crown prince's cousin, and he chose her to lead one of the government sports authorities. You were surprised by the pace with which he's doing stuff. I'm not surprised by the pace... I'm surprised by how detailed the pace is. We are not a community that's used to somebody saying, Tuesday the 5th of November, I want to see X. That kind of means, yes, maybe, inshallah. God willing. There is actually a tracking system that we all monthly update. What's our progress? How have we hit our numbers? We are working and operating like a private sector, and that's new. To a visitor, it doesn't look like that much has changed. Single men in crisp white robes and women dressed entirely in black keep their distance from one another. Female visitors still feel obligated to wear the traditional abaya in public, but no longer the headscarf. At this Starbucks, men sit in one section, women and families just beyond the wooden partition. Are you the oldest? It was difficult to get people, especially women, to talk on camera about the Crown Prince's reforms. This man urged caution. I like the change that is gradual. We don't want to move too fast and pay a heavy price. In other words, you think that the Crown Prince has to be very careful about the pace. Saudi Arabia still adheres to an ancient power-sharing arrangement between the House of Saud and Wahhabi Islam, the strict predominant faith in Saudi Arabia. But the crown prince told us it is not his religion, but extremists within Islamic groups like the Muslim Brotherhood that have infiltrated Saudi society, including its schools. Are you looking at the schooling and the education in Saudi Arabia. Saudi schools have been invaded by many elements from the Muslim Brotherhood organization, surely to a great extent. Even now, there are some elements left. It will be a short while until they are all eradicated completely. You say you're going to eradicate this extremism in the education system? Of course. No country in the world would accept that its educational system be invaded by any radical group. The crown prince represents the vast majority of the Saudi people who are overwhelmingly young, restless, and connected to just about everything through their cell phones. They see a kindred spirit in their new iPad-addicted leader. Most of the young women that I met are all on Snapchat. They were asking me to join them on Snapchat. 
This is changing this entire culture. I can't claim that I played a role in this. Saudi citizens have always been open to social media and technology. Young Saudis we talked to at this trendy pop-up burger joint say they are still careful about what they post on Twitter and Instagram, which is why members of the opposite sex connect via private messaging apps like Snapchat and WhatsApp. Social media. It's huge in Saudi Arabia. This is our escape, yes. The phone is your escape. Yes, social media is. The crown prince has more pressing concerns. Only 22% of women work. And he wants to encourage more to join the workforce. We're working on an initiative which we will launch in the near future to introduce regulations ensuring equal pay for men and women. But you're talking about equal pay. Women can't even drive in this country. This is the last, last place in the world that women don't have the rights to drive. This is no longer an issue. Today, driving schools have been established and will open soon. In a few months, women will drive in Saudi Arabia. We are finally over that painful period that we cannot justify. Certainly most people hear about the rule that will allow women to drive in June. But there have also existed these guardianship laws that in order to travel, a woman has to get the permission of a male in her household. It seems so throwback. Today, Saudi women still have not received their full rights. There are rights stipulated in Islam that they still don't have. We have come a very long way and have a short way to go. He wanted us to see this driving school at Princess Noura University, the largest all-women's university in the world. The school is preparing to teach 70,000 women how to drive. These trainers will put women through classes and simulators before having them hit the road. How do you get to work or school now? For me, I have a driver, or like my dad or my brother. Driving's just a quick win. It's not everything. It's just a representative that we're going in the right direction. It's progress. The trajectory now is just going forward and not backwards. You are witnessing history. Yes, we're glad to be part of this history. Princess Rima is also helping make history. She recently opened the gates for Saudi women to attend soccer matches. I mean, it was just in 2015 that a Saudi woman was arrested trying to go to a game. Yes. Yes. And you know what? I'm proud to say that I was at the first game where that's no longer a reality. How sensational is that to say in two years? In two years, the arc has changed. People have asked me for my impressions. And there's so much that's modern. Yes. In terms of infrastructure and American restaurants. Yes. But it is still interesting to see that single men eat in one part of the restaurant. Yes and families and women in another. Correct. It's segregated. It is viewed here as the preservation of the privacy of the personal space of the woman. If it comes out to being viewed internationally as disrespectful, that's not the intention. Does it end up sometimes causing obstacles? Yes. But the intent is not disrespect. Do you think uh, Mohammed bin Salman is prepared to take the throne? I don't think anyone is ever prepared. I think since he was 18 years old, he has been groomed for leadership. His ascension would mark a generational power shift. It was his grandfather, King Abdulaziz, who founded modern Saudi Arabia and was succeeded by six sons, including the current king, King Salman. The crown prince grew up by his father's side, learning 
and biding his time. What did you learn from your father? Many, many things. He loves history very much. He is an avid reader of history. Each week, he would assign each one of us a book, and at the end of the week, he would ask us about the content of that book. The king always says, if you read the history of a thousand years, you have the experience of a thousand years. Mohammed bin Salman is trying to keep pace with the population that's become as familiar with American celebrity culture as they are with the tales of the prophet in the birthplace of Islam. Just as American society transformed during the 1960s, the Saudis are in the midst of their own cultural revolution. The kingdom, the Middle East, and the Islamic world may never be the same. You're 32 years old. You could rule this country for the next 50 years. Only God knows how long one will live, if one would live 50 years or not. But if things go their normal ways, then that's to be expected. Can anything stop you? Only death. 50 seasons of 60 Minutes. We're reminded of Professor Stephen Hawking, who died this past week. Ed Bradley visited with him in 2003. The renowned physicist, paralyzed by ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, answered Ed's questions with his computerized voice synthesizer. At the time, Professor Hawking was pursuing the holy grail of physics, the theory of everything. You said that if scientists were to discover a complete theory, then we would know the mind of God. But is there really room for God in your concept of the universe? What do you personally believe? I use God as a metaphor for the laws that govern the universe. So when I say we will know the mind of God, I mean we will understand the universe completely. I'm Bill Whitaker. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. So you're always on the go. Now you can take the CBS Mornings with you and we want to go. Wake up to your daily dose of news and interviews on the CBS Mornings On The Go podcast. Listen to CBS Mornings On The Go ad-free on Wondery Plus. Are you a fan of 60 Minutes? You can represent the most watched series on television with shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and more at ParamountShop.com. You can take 20% off with code MINUTES20. That's 20% off at checkout on all 60 Minutes products with code MINUTES20 at ParamountShop.com.